Hey, we're in uh, Luke chapter 8 today, and I want to just let you know that, that when we plan this, Easter on the Greco-Roman calendar is latest it can possibly be, um, the latest Sunday in the year, but the gospel according to Luke has so many chapters in it, and it's a great gospel, but we can't possibly choose one chapter every week from Christmas through the week after Easter and get everything. So we have to make some decisions along the way to double up on some chapters or to say to the preacher, anything in eight or nine, you can preach. Um, and one of the reasons that we did that here is because every year we go through a gospel, and we went through the gospel according to Luke in 2015, and there were other passages that we preached on then. And other passages in Luke chapter eight and nine show up pretty much the same version of it in Matthew and Mark. And we've preached on Matthew and Mark over the last couple of years. So if you're really looking for messages on the stories or the parables or the teachings or the miracles in, uh, in these other chapters, go back into our archives online and look for, uh, look for some others. I mean, read through the, the, the two chapters and then find those stories and you'll be able to find some preaching online. Um, the other thing I want you to know is that Luke, Luke, he doesn't, I don't, I'm not saying that Luke tweaks things. He just highlights different things that Jesus said that others don't necessarily highlight. See, Jesus in his ministry, um, he spent most of the three years of his ministry when he's walking around the earth in a, in a, a region called Capernaum. And Capernaum, uh, with all the different villages and all the different towns, and we think villages and towns, we think a village like Borculo and a town like Zeeland, uh, there were far fewer people back then. If you take Zeeland, those of you who have been around a while that are from Zeeland proper, if you take Zeeland, say, 30 years ago, um, it's a small town. And yes, you had the, the farmers, and you know, the, whether they be muck farmers, whether they be um, corn or, or, or blueberries or whatever, they, they were kind of out in the area. But the people that lived around Zeeland, and it's a pretty tight-knit group of people, and you knew who they were. You knew uh, how they treated their kids. You knew who they used to date. You know who they broke up with on the altar and then married someone else. You know all those stories. So you know if someone, based on their reputation and the lifetime you've spent with them, you know when they tell you something, if you're supposed to give it credibility or not. There's something about small town living that makes it so, yes, everybody knows you. Everyone knows your, the dirt as well as the good. I want you to know that Jesus walked around and ministered in a place like that, 2,500 to 5,000 people, kind of the region of Capernaum. Yes, he spent some time up north. Yes, he spent some time when he went across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, to the Decapolis. When he, when he healed, uh, he delivered the man who was, um, who was possessed by a legion of demons. But most of the time he spent, he spent in Capernaum in these villages. So everybody heard him. And then they heard him teach, and then he would go out, they, they would run off and say what they had heard. Other people would come and hear him for themselves. They want, he's got a good reputation or he has a bad reputation, but people want to know for themselves. So every time he taught, he, he might teach a similar thing, but he would highlight something a little bit differently. Today, we hear of a story when Jesus highlights something differently in this parable of the, the sower of the seeds and the soil. So I've been foreshadowing that we're going to be preaching on this passage since the very first sermon on this, in this series, because I love what Jesus does and Luke articulates. So I want to give you a little heads up. You're very familiar with this passage. If you've grown up in the church, if you've ever been to Sunday school, um, you're, you're going to be quite familiar with this passage. But I'm going to ask you again to listen to it as if you've never heard it before. 
A lot of the people that heard it the first time, face to face, had heard other people talk about it. But this, we typically think of this as in, in kind of Western Christianity as an evangelistic thing. So that what kind of soil were you when you first heard the gospel? But I want to tell you that in, in Luke, that's not what Jesus is saying. He is talking about a lifetime of testimony, not a conversion experience. And so I want you to hear with those words, uh, with those ideas in mind. It reads like this. This is starting in verse 4 of chapter 8 of the gospel according to Luke. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and when it grew up, which grew up with it, and it choked out the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, and it came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. All right, now, we get this, we know this, we understand this. But they didn't farm like we do. Those of you who are old enough to remember the legend of Johnny Appleseed, I want you to picture that little satchel he had with the apple seeds in it. And he would reach in and kind of, as he went along, you know, he's just kind of tossing along to grow up apples everywhere. But I want to ask you this question. Is the purpose of an apple tree to produce apples? Or is the purpose of an apple tree to produce other apple trees, which will grow up, which will produce other apple trees, which will grow up, which will produce other apple trees? See, the, the purpose of this seed that's being sown isn't just to produce a crop. It's to produce a crop that will produce a crop, which will produce a crop. So this isn't about what, what soil we are right now. And they didn't farm like we do. They, they cast this soil, and they had this path that they would walk on. They would try to stay in their spot. They didn't necessarily furrow the ground before they did it. When I was growing up, my uncle had, um, I, I don't know, slave labor, <laughs> nephews and sons, and we, he grew okra, that fine vegetable that everyone's familiar with in the north. Um, it's awful, by the way, slimy and kind of prickly unless you fry it, and then it is amazing. Amen. Amen. <laughs> yeah, fried okra. So it takes away the whole vegetable thing, but oh, is it good. But he would, my, my uncle would kind of pull a little tractor with a little plow, and it would make these little mounds of dirt, kind of, you know, the, the row you hoe, and, and, and we would walk in, and we would stick our finger in it and put it down in there and cover it up and then walk and bend and walk and bend and walk and bend. You always had dirt in your, in your fingernails. Um, now, I'm no, I'm no farmer, but I do understand what it means to plant seeds so that they get covered up and the birds don't come and you're not putting them on, on, on a hardened soil. But back then, some, some theorized that they didn't plow until after they sowed. So after they scatter the seed, then they plow. And the, the, the plowing it, and it was with a kind of a wooden thing that they would either pull behind an ox or they would just kind of furrow the ground. And it would put, put dirt up over the seeds. So it, it, when you hear this, you go, why would anyone plant seeds or sow seeds on rock? Well, it's not what we think. So let's just picture this for a minute. If you're walking in your field that isn't leveled, that all the stumps aren't out, you haven't gone in and pulled out all the rocks and built your fences so your neighbors can't come in like we see nowadays or we see in the colonial days, they just planted and they would have these paths that they would walk on. And obviously, if something has been trampled down and trampled down, and some of the seeds, when you, when you kind of do this, it falls, on the, it falls on the hardened soil. And yeah, you're going to step on it. And it, so it's going to crack some of those seeds open. The birds are going to come, come down and eat it. We all do this. We know this. Dutch people love their lawns. Some of you are lawn heads. I've inherited this. 
I don't like, I have a dog that, that, that eliminates fluid waste in the backyard all in the same little spots and it burns up my lawn. Works so hard on that lawn, it burns it all up. And then, you, you know, if you're gonna overseed it or you're gonna reseed it, you gotta scratch the dirt up a little bit. You put the seed down in there, it's, it's, otherwise it's just this hard, hard soil. You put it down in there and then you put, a little, you, you put a little dirt on top of it so the birds don't come and eat it, right? We get that. But, they, you know, so the stuff that fell on the, on, the, on, the, on the path, the guy, he didn't, he's not gonna go pick up every seed. And then you think, why would you, why would you sow seeds on rock? Well, we think rocks like here's a big boulder and we throw seed on it. Of course it's not going to grow. But in, in that area of the, of the world, the sediment kind of blows around and you might have a half an inch of topsoil, but then it's just hard rock underneath it. So you can't tell until you plow if there's any, if, if there's any depth and any softness or any fertility to the soil. And then, then we have the idea... Of, uh, of, of planting with thorns and thistles. And, and, and why would you plant seeds where there's thorns? Well, the thorns weren't growing yet. When we moved in 2001, we moved into a new home. It's the first time we only, the only dirt that was in the house was the dirt we brought in the house. But uh, it, was a, it was a parade home and a landscaping company was responsible. It's the first time we ever had uh, underground sprinkling, but um, the landscaping company was, was responsible for planting the grass seed. And we moved in the middle of summer. Um, and they, what do I, I don't know how to make a lawn. Um, well, just keep it wet. Keep the, keep the soil dark. You guys have done this, many of you. Keep the soil dark, keep the soil dark. Well, about six weeks later, I had crabgrass up to my knees everywhere. It, I didn't know if there was other grass there. I mean, you saw those little shoots coming up. It was pretty cool. But all of a sudden, you couldn't walk in. It ruined my lawnmower. And, and so I call because I'm thinking I could have done nothing and had a better lawn than this, but I paid someone to do, and I'm not going to mention their name because I'm not happy. Um, still, not that I hold a grudge in Jesus' name. Um, he, what he said is keep knocking it down and put down the anti-germination stuff, the crabgrass preventer next spring. It took two years, but keep knocking it down, keep knocking it down. But I did not know when they put the topsoil in, I don't know if it came from a crabgrass farm, but... I didn't know that that grass was there. So the regular grass seed that was planted, the other stuff grew up. And if I didn't keep knocking it down, it would destroy the grass that was supposed to grow. Same idea here. He doesn't know that the thistles and the thorns are going to come up. You, you put it out there and then you have to tend your soil. You have to knock down or weed out those thorns or it will choke out that which you're trying to grow. And then we all understand the fertile soil. It's, it's got some depth. It's got moisture. It, it, it has nutrients. That's good stuff. That's the picture that every farmer that Jesus was talking to understood. Every one of them knew immediately by saying it. He didn't need any explanation about why would you plant on rock. They know how it works. But for us to have a picture of what Jesus is saying, we need to understand that there are some things that we do that are like that, but there are other things that are just kind of for that region of the world alone. Now, when he said this, he called out, he who has ears to hear let him hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. And he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others, I speak parables so that though seeing, they may not see and though hearing, they may not understand. And I, I, I don't like this. I'm going to tell you. Um, I don't like, I, I want God to, when he communicates, to communicate in such a way that everybody hears it, everybody understands it, and everybody receives it. But our God is such a good God that he doesn't do that. And I know that sounds kind of awkward, because I want that everyone would be saved. I do. I, I, oh. But God is such a God 
that he does not impose or inflict his will upon people who do not want it. He loves you so much that he will not force you to do what it is that he wants you to do. And so the word of God goes out in such a way that if you want to hear it, you want to look for the spiritual truth, you want to look for the salvific truth, if you want to know what God is saying, you can soften your own heart and receive it. But if you don't want, he will not impose. And if you don't believe me, let me give you this picture. Adam and Eve in the garden. God created Adam and then he took something from him and, and grew up Eve. And, and Adam said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She was one that completed him. They are this, 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 they're a picture of humanity created in God's image. And he said, everything that I've created is for you, for you. You tend it, you nurture it. You name it, and if you name it something, it will be called that. You, you name the animals, you name the plants, everything is yours. I'm just going to say to you one thing. This tree, don't touch it. Don't have anything to do with it. And it's not that he's trying to deny Eve or Adam pleasure. It's he's trying to keep them from destruction. Because he knows if they take from that and they eat it, they will know some things that, yes, only God knows, but it won't bring pleasure. It won't bring goodness. It will bring destruction onto humanity as a whole. And so he said to them, all of this is yours. This one, it's mine. And when the serpent came and he tempted them and Eve reached up to grab that fruit, if God was a God who inflicts his will upon us, if God is a God who imposes his will upon us, he would have shown up in the garden, not in the cool of the day, right in the heat of the day, where he slapped her hand and said, I told you, no. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he wants us to be people that love God not out of fear, not out of trepidation, but out of love for God and his extravagant goodness. So that's why Jesus sometimes says, I speak in parables so that those, though they hear, they don't really hear. Those who see don't really see. But to some, he wants to make sure that we hear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us God. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. This is something else that we don't always see. We don't always know. The word of God, the seed is the word of God. Jesus is the living word, but everything he says is the word that goes out from the mouth of God and will create, will, 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 will achieve the purpose that he sent it to achieve. It's the whole reason for, for preaching now is that as his word goes out, it will not return void. It will accomplish that which he sent it to do. But Jesus says the seed in this parable is the word of God. And here's what's interesting. The last thing that any, the last mention of the seed as having any purpose or what it is, is right there. Because the seed is the same on the path, on the rocky soil, on the thorn soil, or on the fertile soil. The seed is the same. So God's, God's message, his word for me, and his message for you, and his message for the enemies of God, his message for the people in the Middle East, and the scientific, uh, the scientific exploration areas of the Antarctica, the, the word is the same. The message is the same, and it has always been the same. I will be your God, you will be my people. If you don't behave like you're my people, consequences are going to come your way because you've chosen that which is against me. You've said not my will, but, or not your will, but mine be done. That has been, the, that has been, that has been our experience, and it has been God's plan from day one of creation. The seed is the word of God, and the same seed goes on the path, the rock, the thistle, and the fertile soil. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. So that 
they may not believe and be saved. Now, Jesus is saying something about the enemy of God right there, and he's also saying something about the rest of it. The word here, so that they will not believe and be saved, the word here for saved is sozo. It's S-O-Z-O is the closest way we could say it, do it, spell it in English. But it doesn't just mean salvation, like fire insurance, like I'm, I'm not going to burn. It means transformed in body, healed. It means delivered from the enemy's uh, schemes and his possessions and oppressions. So it's deliverance, it's healing, it's salvation, it's eternal address changing. But it's eternal address changing not when we die and go to heaven, it's eternal address changing now, body, mind, spirit, and strength, period. And he's saying that the, the enemy's job is to, win, to, to create a hard heart in someone, to continue to, to make someone so bitter that when they hear the truth of God, that he can just yank it out so that they can't believe and be saved. But as the only of all four soils, this is the only one where the devil is given credit for having anything to do with it. The rest of them are on us. So if you're someone who's heard the word of God and responded in, in any way, if you've been to Cranhill, if you've been to Cranhill Ranch, if you've been to Spring Hill, if you've been to Geneva, if you've been to a Young Life camp, if you've been to a retreat, if you've shown up on a Sunday morning and somehow, some way you said, yes, Lord, then this is not you. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in a time of testing, they fall away. And we don't like this because we don't want God to be a God who tests, especially in our culture. But I'm going to show you a couple of different examples of when God does indeed test. You know of Abraham and Isaac. God promised Abraham at a very old age that he would have a kid and that that based on that lineage that, that all of us would be blessed, that there, his, his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. You know that story, right? Genesis 22 is when God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, yes, Lord, take your son Isaac, whom you love, and take him to a place that I'll, that I'll tell you about, and I want you to slaughter him there for me. The first verse of Genesis 22 is sometime later, God tested Abraham. Abraham, do you love me? more than the promise I gave you? Abraham, do you love me more than your son? Are you willing to, to, to trust me so much that even if the promise that I've made in your son, if you take that away, will I still be faithful? God tested Abraham. God tests a lot. He did it with Elijah. When Elijah was asked to go to say to Ahab, King Ahab, Ahab, until it comes from my mouth, there will be famine in this land. And then Ahab runs off and he's by a wadi and he hangs out there for a while and birds feed him. And birds, excuse me, I said Abraham. Elijah, he has nothing else but birds, ravens. And we think, well, yeah, he's there for a while. It's kind of boring. And it's years because for famine, to be in plenty and to go to famine, it takes two, three, or four years before all the stores are used up and, and people are starving. And then when God calls him out, he calls him out and he sends him off to a woman, uh, to a widow. And he goes, woman, can you give me something to eat? And she goes, well, this is all I have. Me and my son, we're gonna, I'm going to make some food and then we're going to die. And then that kid ends up dying. That's a test. It's me and you, Lord, I'm speaking for you. And then years later, he's the one who cries out and says, am I the only one, Lord? Jesus himself was tested after the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God, descended on him in bodily form as a dove. And a voice from heaven says, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. He's immediately led into the desert for 40 days with no food to be tempted by the devil. You're going to be tested. 
Will you be a person who, when they're tested, remains faithful? I don't want you to be tested, but you either will be or already have been numerous times in your life. If there are people that you've trusted, people that you poured your life into, people that you've sacrificed for, and they turn on you when given an opportunity to throw you under the bus or to take responsibility for themselves, they throw you under the bus. People that accuse, people that betray, people that harm. If you have a child that you love dearly and they decide that they don't love you or they accuse you of having done things that you did not do, we're all going to be tested, whether it be you go bankrupt, whether it be that your, your house is in trouble, you, know, you, you, you can't pay your bills and you're afraid you're going to lose your house. All kinds of things happen. Are you going to be someone whose roots go so shallow that when you are tested... You burn up. Because notice, this isn't evangelistic. Seeds don't germinate overnight. If you're that person, you put that seed on the ground or the grass and you keep, the, keep it wet, keep it wet, keep the, keep the soil dark, keep it dark. And then after seven to ten days, you walk out there and there's tiny, tiny little pieces of, of grass. And you're like, oh, yeah, I better mow it. No. A little bit more fertilizer, you keep it wet, you keep the birds away, you keep the dog off of it because you don't want the dog eliminating fluid waste there anymore, right? And so it's a year or two years before it, it, it matters, before it, it's substantial, before you can walk on it barefoot and not worry about tearing it up because the roots have to go down. What kind of soil are you tending in your life when things are good so that when you are tested, there's roots? And when it's a, a time of drought, you got water, you got a tap root that goes down there. The next one is this. They believe for a while, yep, and when the time of testing comes, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's, and this is where Luke quotes Jesus in a way that nobody else does. They are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. They did not mature. This is the one. As Western Christians, Christians in the United States in particular, we suffer from something and we don't think of it as a disease, we don't think of it as an affliction, but we suffer from something known as affluenza. We're very affluent. We're in the top 2% of all the richest people in the world. Now, I'm not coming down on, on, on God's provision and you having, I've got plenty of money, more so than most other people in the world. But sometimes those things that are blessings become things that consume us. I'll give you just a little example on today's Sunday. So Friday night, Lynn goes up to bed. She goes up a little earlier than I do typically because um, I'm a night owl and she's the person that wakes up and greets the sun with, what a glorious day. <laughs> so she goes up a little bit earlier and she, and she yells down the stairs and she goes, Trent, which is not the, t if, if, how it goes up like that tells me something's wrong. Trent, yeah, no cold water's coming out of my sink. It was cold, you remember, there's a lot of wind, we wide open on that side. Um, so, frozen pipes. Now, but I want you to hear what she said. No cold water is coming out of my sink. She has a sink all to herself. If she moves this far, she has another sink. 
She can brush her teeth, not with hot water, but with cold water by moving from one side of the pulpit to the other, that distance. And so I went up and on my way up, I'm like, oh my goodness, I got to get a space heater. I got to sit there. It's going to be 80, 90 degrees in the bathroom tonight. And it's going to make some noise. And it's going to blow toward the outside wall and hopefully thaw that thing out. But what if it doesn't? What if it bursts? And then when it thaws and, and I'm going to have water damage, I'm going to have drywall issues. I'm going to have plumbing. I, it's going to get expensive. I still live inside. Right? That's a worry, but it's a worry that isn't important. It's actually a worry that comes from having affluenza. I live inside. If my ice maker breaks, that's a worry. That's, oh man, 180 bucks to fix my ice maker. I have ice. My two cars live, they sleep inside. But those worries of the world, those pleasures and those riches can distract us. So that we don't mature. Because we don't feel a need for God all the time, we don't exercise our faith, tend our soil, and send our roots down so that when we're tested, when worries come up, when hardship comes, when we get a diagnosis, we have nothing to cling to but God alone. Jesus isn't saying this is about how you heard it the first time. He's saying you're going to hear it again and again and again and again. Are you consuming the word of God? Are you, are you making it part of you? Are you exercising your faith in such a way that you always understand the extravagance of God's love? Are you, are you devouring the scriptures because you hunger and thirst for righteousness like Pastor Greg does, who makes it a part of him? Because what Jesus says here is the last... But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. If things are going well, what need is there for perseverance? And sometimes our perseverance is just a need to live by the hope that we profess because the one who promised is faithful. I'm going to act as if I'm faithful even though nothing says I should be. Because faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you're not seeing. So it could be testing. It could be worries, pleasures, or riches. But Christ is saying, fertile soil is your responsibility. Just like he will not impose his will upon you, he will not impose on you soil in your heart that you don't try to develop. You get to participate with the work of God by nurturing the soil, soil watering the soil, and softening your heart. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a, in a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. Both of these are both encouraging and there's an element of judgment. I 
I, says Jesus, I am the light of the world. But he tells us that we are the salt and the light of the world. He is the word and he plants the word in us and he expects us to produce a crop or fruit. And we're told in Galatians 5 that the fruit, not the fruit, fruits of the spirit are, that's not what it says, the fruit of the spirit. So it's not one or two of these, it's all of these all at once. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. What does our world need more? In an atmosphere of outrage, false accusation, anger, and offense. What does our world need more than people who return evil with kindness? Than people who bless and do not curse? Than people who cannot be offended because we're invincible and immortal? You know that the Heidelberg Catechism says, and it's because it's scripture, the Heidelberg Catechism says... That, the, the, that God loves me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven? If a hair can't fall out of my head without God's will, nothing can influence me, harm me, or do anything to me, or test me without God's will. So as my friend Tim Vink says, you, I'm immortal. No, nothing, no one can do anything to me that God doesn't want to happen. And if God numbered my days, no one can even kill me unless God so allows it. But instead, we go, why God, why God, why God? Instead of, Lord, how can I be faithful even though this is happening? How, Lord, because my life is so comfortable, how can I remain faithful to you because you will not impose yourself upon me? How do I ask you and invite you into my life so that I can be faithful even though I have worries, even though I have riches, even though I'm being tested? See, God is so good that he will not impose himself upon you, but he is also so good that he invites you to invite him in. No matter the circumstances, no matter the situations, and nothing can happen to you that he does not allow. And if he allows it, he might want to do something in or through it. He wants to produce in us a crop. He wants to produce in us fruit. He, wants to, he has entrusted the word of God to us. It does not change. But as people look around in a world of darkness, they look at us and they see light and they come in. We forgive. We bless. We love. And we, we plant the seed in them. And then they plant the seed in another. And they plant the seed in another. That is God's plan. That is how God works. And that is what God wants. So when we pray in a moment, we'll be praying, thanking God for what he's done for us, what he's done in us, but even more so what he's going to do through us. Because this parable isn't about what happened when you were converted. It's about who are you as you go along? Is there a spot in your life that is rocky soil? Is there a spot in your life that is all concerned about worries and riches? And if there is, till the soil. Keep it dark wet so that God can continue to grow and germinate and produce a crop that only God can produce in a willing heart and a faithful soul. Let's pray. Almighty God, I know that there are people in this room right now and I know their story. 
and they're beaten up. They're struck down. But they're not destroyed. Persecuted. Not abandoned. So Lord, thank you for your faithfulness, even when others aren't. Thank you that your word never changes and that your word falls on the soil of the wicked as well as the righteous, on the unwilling as well as the willing. That you call us day to day, minute by minute to say, not my will, but yours be done. And you're faithful to forgive us when we say, my will, not yours be done. Lord, thank you for what you've done in us. Thank you for what you've done for us. And we thank you in advance for what you're doing through us. We pray that you're glorified in it. And we pray these things in your son's name through the power of your spirit for the glory of God our Father. Amen. There's a picture I have of Jesus that deals with testing and that kind of thing. And I, I, I'm not going to take long to say it, but there were, there was a, there was, in my former charge, there was a period of time when I just found myself experiencing life alone, having been betrayed in public. And I was in this meeting and it was awful. And I, I had to leave. I was asked to. And I left and I just was sitting in my office weeping alone. And someone, a friend, left that meeting that he was duty bound to stay in and left and came and just sat with me as I cried. A couple of weeks later, I'm at home again alone, having feeling, feeling and experiencing betrayal. And another friend who's actually here today just showed up at my door, knocked, came in, and just sat with me. In the middle of testing, in the middle of trial, in the middle of all that stuff, the people that represented Jesus to me weren't the people that made it go away, but the people that joined me in it. Sometimes God tests, he allows us to be tested or he tests us. Sometimes we, we confuse our own faith journey and we just want God to deliver us. But if you picture the God who joins you in your suffering instead of the God who takes all suffering away. See, he calls us to join him in his. And when we experience his suffering, we're with him and he's with us. So when you're tested, when you face trials of many kinds, in this world there will be trouble. But take heart, says Jesus. I have overcome the world. And as he overcomes the world, he will sit with you, hold you, and minister to you even though life hurts. The Lord bless you, and he does keep you, and he does. The Lord turn his countenance toward you, be gracious to you, smile at you, and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ.